Matthew chapter 3. I'm going to start off with verses 1 through 6, and then we'll pick up once we broke that section down with the verses that follow. Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. It says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins." Now, at this point, Matthew introduces John the Baptist to his readers, but he isn't really introducing him to his readers in the sense of saying, hey, let me introduce you to John the Baptist. At this point, everybody knew who John the Baptist was. I mean, remember, his, his audience is Jewish believers. They all knew who John the Baptist was, and that wasn't a confusion thing. Actually, if you do any study, historical accounts of that time actually refer to John the Baptist. That's what a big figure he was. If you actually go and read Jerome and his writings about history, Jerome mentions John the Baptist. And so it wasn't that he was introducing John the Baptist to him because everybody knew who he was, but he was introducing to him, him to them in this way. Oh, by the way, this guy that everybody knows about called John the Baptist, this is the one that Isaiah spoke about. And actually, if you go and look at all the gospel accounts of their story of John the Baptist, and even John has it, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all reference John the Baptist, all of them quote this passage from Isaiah. So I want you to turn there. Go to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. Look at verses 1 through 5. Now, again, we're going to take some time tonight to look closely at prophecy Remember how we've heard me say over and over, we need to rightly divide the word of God. <clears throat> so Isaiah chapter 40, look at verses 1 through 5. It says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. If you and I were to read this, knowing what we know about what's going to happen in the tribulation period, especially at the end of the tribulation period, we would read all of this to be at the end of the tribulation period. For example where it says she's received double for her sins, uh, cry to her that her warfare is ended. Is, is, is Israel's warfare ended yet? Not even close. We know that in the study of Revelation at the end of the tribulation period, there's going to be this massive earthquake that levels the whole earth. All the mountains will be leveled. The islands go away. Remember, Jerusalem split into three parts, and the northern parts leveled flat, the southern parts leveled flat, and then the center part where the temple is going to be is going to be raised up. And here we see that every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And then it says, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Has all this happened yet? Has any of this happened yet? No. Yet, verse 3, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. 
all four Gospels tell us that that was fulfilled in John the Baptist. Interestingly enough, here we have a prophecy about the end of the nation of Israel's time period there in the tribulation period and how God's going to restore them and he's going to comfort them and he's going to level everything and he's going to put an end to her suffering and her warfare. In the midst of that prophecy that's mainly speaking about what is still yet to come, there's one verse that's talking about what happened prior to Jesus coming the first time. And like we've talked about before, that's why it's so important when you study prophecy to look closely and what's it referring to. Understanding God's timeline and his dispensations, if you will, that the scriptures have clearly laid out that they're going to be throughout time. Where does this fit? This verse is talking about here. This verse is talking about here. And that's where if you learn how to study the scriptures that way, prophecy makes a whole lot more sense. And as we've talked about before, prophecy could be talking about one time period in the first half of a verse and another whole time period in the second half of a verse. And that's why we have to look closely. But here, all four Gospels tell us that Isaiah chapter 40, what we call verse 3, is referring to John the Baptist. So Matthew is introducing John the Baptist to his hearers and his readers. Oh, they knew who John the Baptist was. But he says, oh, by the way, this is the one that Isaiah spoke about. This is the one that Isaiah spoke about. But I want to also show you that Malachi spoke about him. Go to Malachi chapter 4. <clears throat> Malachi chapter 4. Look at verses 5 and 6. The very last prophecy, the last thing we have recorded in the Old Testament the last verses, if you will, say in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Now some of you say, wait a minute, Jim, where is this talking about John the Baptist? This is talking about Elijah, how God's going to send Elijah, the prophet, to come before Jesus comes. And the prophet Elijah is going to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. You probably say, that's not talking about John the Baptist, that's talking about Elijah. Well, I want to show you tonight that it's actually talking about Elijah and John the Baptist. Go with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, we'll see just a brief section of the account of John the Baptist's birth and the announcement of his birth mainly. Luke chapter 1, look at verses 5 through 17. It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. 
For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Does that sound familiar? Here it says he's going to go in the power and the spirit of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. That's almost word for word what we just saw in Malachi, the last thing that was recorded in the Old Testament before the 400 years of silence. And as you're going to see from Scripture, John the Baptist was not the fulfillment of the prophecy in Malachi chapter 4, but he was. Now, in case you didn't understand what I just said, let me clarify it for you. John the Baptist wasn't the fulfillment of Malachi chapter 4, but he was. Let me help you one more time. John the Baptist wasn't the fulfillment of Malachi chapter 4, but he was. Are you good? Well, let's go to Matthew chapter 17, see if we can get a little more help with this. Go to Matthew chapter 17. Look at verses 1 through 13. It says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come and he will, still future, restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they didn't recognize him, but to him, but to, did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So here Jesus says the same thing. He says, Elijah is going to come. Because remember, they, on this mountain of transfiguration, Peter, James, and John see Jesus' glory shine through his body. And then Moses and Elijah appear and they're talking with Jesus. We'll break this down in a lot more detail when we get to Matthew 17 because it's an interesting, cool, cool study. But they, because Elijah's there... And they knew the prophecies from Malachi, and the scribes had been saying that Elijah was still going to come. They were like, we just saw Elijah. How come the prophets, the scribes say that Elijah has to come? And Jesus says, I tell you, Elijah is going to come. And he's going to restore all things. By the way, that's one of the many reasons. And again, when we get to Matthew 17, I'll break it down in more detail. One of the many reasons why I believe one of the two witnesses is going to be Elijah. I believe the Bible clearly shows that Elijah will be one of the two witnesses because he's going to come right before the day of the Lord when Jesus comes back. and He's going to prepare the hearts of the people in the nation of Israel. But he says, but I also say to you, even though Elijah is still going to come, Elijah's already come. See, at this point, John the Baptist has already been put to death. 
This is near the end of Jesus' three years of ministry on the earth. He's about to go to the cross. And he says, Elijah's already come. And they did to him whatever they wanted. Oh, and we always miss that part. And Jesus then says, and they're going to do the same thing to the Son of Man. In other words, they're going to do the same to me. And that's when they realized that he was referring to John the Baptist. So was John the Baptist the fulfillment of Malachi chapter 4? No, not in its fullness, right? It hasn't been fully fulfilled because Elijah's still going to come. So the answer is no, but he was. You understand what I'm saying? Does that make a little more sense to us now? I hope so, because later on in our study, something's going to happen that's going to make you go, wait a minute, I thought I understood it, now I really don't. All right, so stick with me. Again, let me put it to you this way. Do we have a choice when it comes to making decisions in our life? Does God already know what our choice is going to be? See, this is where it gets hard for us. John the Baptist could have been the fulfillment of the Malachi prophecy if the nation of Israel had repented and received Jesus as their Messiah. But don't miss something. People have said if the nation of Israel had just accepted Jesus as their Messiah, the kingdom could have begun right away. Yes, but only if Jesus died. You see, a lot of people think that if they had just said, we accept you, you are our Messiah, come rule and reign now, and he had just started the kingdom right then, that that would have been great. No, 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 no. That would have been horrible. Because we'd all still be in our sin. He had to die. He had to pay for the sins of the world. So if they had been willing to accept that he was the Messiah, he was the promised Christ, he was the prophet that was sent, if they had accepted it and understood that he had to die for their sins, yes, the, the millennial kingdom could have begun. So did they give, were they given an opportunity? Was the nation of Israel given an opportunity to respond? Yes, they were. Jesus himself said, if you'd only let me, I would have gathered you as a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you weren't willing. I wanted to. It was offered. Oh, by the way, all along I knew you, because I, I'm outside of time and I'm God, I knew you weren't going to. As well. So John the Baptist was an opportunity for the fulfillment of Malachi chapter 4, and he was a partial fulfillment, but he wasn't the full fulfillment. All right? Now, John was the last in the line of the Old Testament prophets. If someone ever asks you, who was the last Old Testament prophet? Everybody's answer is going to be Malachi. No, the answer is John the Baptist. He's the last in the line of Old Testament prophets. And not only that, he dressed like one. He went in the power and the spirit of who? A lot of you may not have realized this. He even dressed just like Elijah. Go to 2 Kings chapter 1. 2 Kings chapter 1. Look at verses 1 through 8. Second Kings chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. It says, after the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria, and he lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. But what the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, the Tishbite, 
Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it because there's no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. Now the messengers returned to the king and he said to them, why have you returned? And they said, there came a man to meet us. And, and, and this guy said to us, go back to the king who sent you and say to him, thus says the Lord, is it because there's no God in Israel that you're sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Now the king said to them, what kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And the guy said, or the, Ahab, the king Ahab said, sorry, Ahaziah said, it's Elijah the Tishbite. Isn't that interesting? What does Matthew tell us was John the Baptist's clothing? Camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. He even dressed just like Elijah. Oh, but he wasn't the only one. Actually, prophets would wear things like that. Go to Zechariah chapter 13. In Zechariah chapter 13, look at verses 4 and 5. <clears throat> it says, On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive but he will say, I'm no prophet, I'm a worker of the soil, for a man sold me in my youth. This is talking about the end of the tribulation period when Jesus comes back and God reveals all the things that have been hidden. And in that day, all the prophets who have been prophesying and prophesying falsehood will go, I wasn't a prophet, <laughs> that wasn't me. And they're going to take off their hairy cloaks that they used to deceive people. How did the prophets dress back in the day? Most of them wore hairy garments. And John the Baptist dressed just like Elijah did. He's the last in the line of the Old Testament prophets. Now, we also see that his diet was made of what? According to Matthew chapter 3, what was his diet? Locusts and wild honey. Now, we know about wild honey because God even promised in the promised land that they're going to have milk and honey. It's going to be flowing with milk and honey. But what about this locust stuff? Weren't they not allowed to eat winged insects? I mean, if you know anything about the Levitical law, the Levitical law gave clear instructions about eating winged insects. Go with me to Leviticus chapter 11, and you'll see that although not desirable, his diet fulfilled Levitical law and did not break it. Leviticus chapter 11, look at verses 20 through 23. Leviticus chapter 11, starting in verse 20. God says, all winged insects that go on all fours are detestable to you. Yet among the winged insects that go on all fours, you may eat those that have jointed legs above their feet with which to hop on the ground. Of them you may eat the locust of any kind, the bald locust of any kind, the cricket of any kind, and the grasshopper of any kind. But all the other winged insects that have four feet are detestable to you. Now, some of you say, I think they're all detestable. But, you know, if you put chocolate on some, I've heard chocolate-covered grasshoppers aren't bad, you know. But John the Baptist's diet fulfilled the Levitical law. He wasn't breaking any Levitical laws by eating what he ate. He ate locusts and wild honey. All right? So he 
was a prophet. What was his message? Make way, but what before make way? Repent. Listen closely. We're going to spend some time on this word tonight. Because I honestly believe that the word repent has lost its meaning in our day. And I want to spend some time helping to be used of the Lord, hopefully, in this, through the Scriptures and through the Spirit of God speaking to us tonight to get us all back to a biblical understanding of the word repent. The word repent in the Greek is the Greek word metanoia. If you want to write it down and double check it, it's M-E-T-A-N-O-I-A. M-E-T-A-N-O-I-A. Metanoia. It means to have a change of mind, to change one's mind. But there's more to it than just changing your mind. It's a change of mind which leads to a change in your conduct. See, because you can have a change of mind, but you don't change your actions. You, to repent, there's a change of mind that is followed by change of actions. Now, this is not remorse or sorrow or regret, although sometimes those are included in it. Repentance without a change of action is not biblical repentance. Go to Matthew chapter 3 again. Look at verses 7 and 8, the verses we're going to start covering in just a little bit. Matthew chapter 3, look at verses 7 and 8. It says, when he, this is John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, we're going to deal a little bit later tonight why the Sadducees and the Pharisees showed up to come hear John preach. We'll deal with that in a little bit. But when they do, he stops them. I mean, all these people are coming out from all around to be confessing their sins and being baptized. The Pharisees and the Sadducees show up and he says, well, 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 I'm not baptizing you guys until I see evidence of repentance. Because real repentance comes with a change of action. Go to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, look at verse 5. Jesus' message to the church in Ephesus. Here he is writing to the church and he says, Remember therefore, verse 5 of chapter 2 of Revelation, Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I'll come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Repentance, biblical repentance, isn't just a change of your mind about what it is that you need to change your mind about. It's included with a change of action. Have you ever been sorry for what you've done? Did you ever keep doing it? Is that true repentance? Now, listen closely. I'm not saying that if you truly repent, you'll never do it again. Don't hear me that way, okay? I'm not saying if you truly repent, you'll never do it again because Satan's a jerk and our flesh is weak. But real repentance comes with an actual change, not just of heart or a change of mind, but a change of our actions. There's many of us that have been sorry for what we've done. We've regretted what we've done. And we might even try to do better. But real repentance, as you're going to see from Scripture, is something God does in our hearts. Actually, I don't have the time to walk you down this road, so let me just kind of mention a couple of things to you. The Bible actually says that you and I can't even repent unless God gives us the grace to do it. You do realize from Romans chapter 3, verse 10, that we love to quote how there's no one righteous, not even one. But does anybody know what verse 11 says? There's no one who seeks God. 
You wouldn't even repent unless God did that work in your heart to bring you to that point. Now, don't hear me say that God is the one that makes you repent. No, God's the one that makes it possible for you to repent. The Bible says in Romans chapter 2 that it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. The purpose of his mercy, the purpose of his grace, the purpose of his patience is to bring us to repentance. Peter did pray one time, though, that in, in, in the book of Peter, he said that God may grant them repentance. So understand that true repentance isn't something you do on your own. It's something that God initiates. You still are responsible for the repentance, but you need even God to help you have the mindset and the heart to repent if it's going to be biblical repentance. By the way, that also sets each of us free from trying to get our children or our grandchildren or our neighbors to repent. You can't. Only God can bring someone to that understanding. It's the Holy Spirit's job to bring them to repentance. All right? Now, at the same time, I'm going to give you a quiz on this repentance stuff. Remember, the definition of metanoia is what? Change of mind, which is accompanied by what? Change of action. Okay. Now, I'm going to, give you, I'm going to tell you now, I'm setting you up. Go to Matthew 27. Matthew 27. Look at verses 3 through 5. Matthew chapter 27, verses 3 through 5. This is right after Jesus had, been, Jesus had been handed over to Pilate. Then Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned. He changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what's that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and he hanged himself. Here's your question. Did Judas repent? The answer is no. Now, again, Knowing Greek helps. Now, don't think that I know Greek. I know I have people that know Greek, and they do their work for me. I have been blessed by God with the memory to be able to research and do the work and ask certain I have people that actually do research for me in all my study and all my travels and all the stuff that I'm forever memorizing and putting this word into my heart. As I'm wrestling and studying on the scriptures, I'll contact people who love to do this kind of stuff, dig into the words and the etymology and all that kind of stuff, and I'll contact them and say, what is this word here? What does it really mean? And how is it used? And how many times is it used? So whenever you see me say, well, that Greek word is such and so, and it's been used 14 times here and 27 times there, I didn't do all that work. There are gifted people that have those gifts who use their gifts and they partner in my ministry. I've been blessed to be able to say it's so many times, and here's what it means here, and here's how it's used there. And I use my gifts, they use theirs, and we work together as a great team. This word translated change his mind is not metanoia. It's actually a word that means regret. He regretted what he did. And he actually went and said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, we don't care. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple, and he departed, and he went and did what? He hung himself. That's not repentance. You see, true repentance, when it comes for the lost person, the person separated from God because of their sin, a true repentance is not just a change of mind and a change of action, but it's a change of mind about who Jesus really is. 
It's one thing to say, I think he was innocent. That's great. But do you understand that he's God? You see, if Judas was truly repentant, Judas would have thrown the money in the temple and won to who? To Jesus. Because he would have understood he's not just innocent, he's God. And he'll forgive me. And I'll just fall on my face before him for his mercy. You see, for the lost person, true repentance isn't just I'm sorry for what I've done, and I'm not going to do that anymore, and I'm going to stop living like that. It has to involve an understanding of who Jesus is to be a biblical definition of repentance when it comes to from the lost person to be saved. Now, people have over the years wrestled with whether or not Judas went to heaven. Because people have seen this and they said, well, it sure looks like he changed his mind. Looks like he repented. And I think Judas is in heaven because God forgives people. Well, the Bible's very clear. Jesus himself said he went where he belonged. Not talking about heaven. He also said he was a child of perdition from the beginning. It was never one of us. Jesus himself prayed right before the cross. I lost none that you've given me except the one doomed to destruction which I never had. So did Judas go to heaven or hell? Judas went to hell, folks. Oh, he changed his mind, but it wasn't repentance. It was a regret. There are many times in our lives we wish we hadn't done what we had done, and we change our mind about something we thought was fun. Now we don't think it's so much fun, but it's not repentance. Do you understand? It's a change of mind about things, but it's a regret. Man, I wish I hadn't have done that. Repentance is not only a change of mind and a change of action. When for the lost person, true repentance has to include an understanding of who God is and who Jesus is. Let me put it to you this way. I think the Bible teaches that if a lost person is truly repentant, they will be saved. The thief on the cross. He had a change of heart and a change of mind about who Jesus was and what did it make him do? Remember me when you go into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you'll be in paradise. Go ahead. Would it not take the Holy Spirit to show Judas just what he had done? Just because the Holy Spirit showed Judas what he did doesn't mean he repented. But yes, I would agree. I would agree. Yeah, because truth without the Holy Spirit is impossible for the, for the lost person. So I believe that the Holy Spirit showed Judas... But what Judas did instead of really repenting was he felt sorry for what he did, regretted what he had done, tried to make it right on his own, and then went and killed himself. Because he had believed Christ was the Son of God. He heard all the preaching about forgiveness. Yep. And that he would have been welcomed. Yep. He didn't believe it. Right. Yes. Okay. Right. But without repentance, though, there is no salvation. They're tied together. Let me show you what I mean. Go to Acts chapter 2 real quick and keep asking your question. Go to Acts chapter 2. Go ahead. The question is, don't people in some means grow in a relationship with Christ into repentance? I don't know what you mean by grow into repentance. Are you talking for the lost person or the saved person? Because repentance for a saved person is different from a saved person, uh, lost person repentance. Because for repentance is purely for the purpose of getting right before God first for the lost person. From the point of salvation, accepting the grace of Christ, mm -hmm. move forward. 
Okay, so you're saying for a born-again believer, do we grow in our understanding of what our sin was? I think without question. Okay. Oh, without question. And then we should also grow in our understanding of what repentance is. Yes, without question. I believe we're going to continue to grow in our knowledge of repentance after salvation. What I'm saying is for the lost person, if it doesn't include a change of mind about who Jesus is, it's not biblical repentance for salvation. You see what I'm saying? So many people have for years, you've heard them say it. I think Judas is in heaven. I think he repented. I think he... No, he didn't. He didn't repent. He had a change of mind. He regretted what he did. He tried to fix it himself. It didn't include a change of mind about who Jesus is. Go to Acts chapter 2. Maybe this will help you. Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 41. Peter's just been, finished being used of the Holy Spirit to preach at Pentecost. In verse 37, it says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Who did that work? Holy Spirit. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children who are for, and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized and they were, they were added that day about 3,000 souls. The Holy Spirit did His work, like you were talking about, brought them to an understanding. But real repentance, now John, when they say, well, what should we do? We realize we're in trouble. Repent. Acknowledge your sin. Understand that the only way you can make it right is to be, fall on your face before Jesus. Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Yes, sir. Okay, Mike. John's message of repentance, folks, was simply a message about sin and the need of people to acknowledge their sin and be willing to turn from their sin to be ready for what God was about to do through the one who was coming that John was preparing the way for. Let me say that to you again. John's message of repentance was just laying the foundation, preparing the way for the Lord, as the scripture says, was laying the foundation of, in order for you to properly respond to what God is about to do through this one that is to come, the one that I'm preparing the way for, Israel, what you've got to do is you've got to acknowledge your sin and you need to be willing to turn from that sin. and be that, Otherwise, if you don't acknowledge your sin and aren't willing to turn from that sin, you're not going to be ready to receive what God's about to do. Was John's baptism repentance enough for salvation? No. That's why there's a baptism in Jesus, because your faith has been put into him. So we'll go to Mark chapter 1. Mark's account puts it all together pretty well. Go to Mark chapter 1. I think your point, by the way, John, over here is the, the, about the fact that for us as believers, we grow in our understanding of repentance. I, I, think, that's a, I think that's a wonderful way to put it. We, we don't even fully understand repentance in order to be saved. We just know this much. I'm a sinner. I need to have a change of heart. I need to have a change of life. And the only one that can do that for me is Jesus. I think after we've been saved, the Holy Spirit, grow, as we grow in our knowledge of the Lord and what he's doing and what he's blessed, we grow in an understanding of our lostness. I think we, and the longer I've been a Christian, the more I realized how bad my sin was before I even got saved. The more I realized how bad my sin is now. Thank God for his fact that I'm forgiven of it. But I have, I, I've come to a deeper understanding of my sin because of the grace of the Spirit of God. Go ahead.
Well, that's why he's writing to the church. If you look at his letters to the seven churches in Revelation, repent, 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 repent. Folks, we're, even as believers, we still need to turn. We still need to have a change of mind that is followed by action. Or else we'll miss out on reward. We still sin. Anybody say they don't sin? They lie and the truth is not in them. So God's still working on repentance in all of our hearts. Mark chapter 1, look at verses 1 through 8. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Again, his message was a message of repentance to get ready for the one that is to come. And none of us will respond appropriately to Jesus without an understanding of our sin. Now, let me real quickly say, when it says they were confessing their sins, we've had a misunderstanding on confession for years. They weren't all standing there saying, I've done this, and I've done that, and I've done this, and I've done that. No, all they were doing was agreeing they sinned. To confess, the word actually means to agree. The Greek word, again, homologeo, means to say the same thing. In other words, if I agree with you, who initiated the conversation, me or you? You did, right? I didn't initiate it. You said something and I agree. That's confession. So when we confess our sins, who's the one that started the conversation? God, and he shows us our sin, and we agree that we have sinned. That's confession. We've turned it into, well, I need to tell everybody what I've done. No, no that's not what it means. And a lot of damage has been done over the years in the church because of a misunderstanding of confession. The word confess means you agree. When you say the same thing as God, you agree with God, you acknowledge your sin, and that's how you confess your sin. You say, you're right, Lord, that was wrong, and I, I repent. Lord, you're right, and I thank you for your forgiveness. Go back to Matthew chapter 3, look at verses 7 through 12. Now, in chapter 3 of Matthew, verse 7, when, when he, John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to, from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. All right? Now, the reason why the Pharisees and the Sadducees were coming out to see John was twofold that I can see from the scriptures. One is, first off, because large crowds were going out to see him. If you look at the gospel accounts, look again, again at verses 5 and 6 of chapter 3. 
It says, then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. Remember how I told you at the beginning, even historians that aren't believers back in the day all knew who John the Baptist was. He's referred to. So there were so many people leaving the cities, going out in the wilderness to hear this in their minds, nut or maybe not a nut, but he was definitely drawing crowds. So many people were going out and then they were agreeing with his message and being baptized the Pharisees and the Sadducees had a problem with that. You know why? They were losing followers. They were more interested in the people following them. They did what they did as a show so people would be impressed with them and follow them. But there's another reason why. The scripture shows us, and I'll take you there in just a second. The scripture shows us that they had sent the priests and the Levites to examine John the Baptist. And when they came back and reported, they most likely weren't satisfied with what they said that John said, so they wanted to go out and find out for themselves. Go to John chapter 1. Let me show you what I mean by that. In John chapter 1, verses 19 through 28, we see that prior to the Pharisees and the Sadducees going out, they sent the scribes and the Levites to go examine John. John chapter 1, verses 19 through 28. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Wait a minute. I thought we had this cleared up. Jesus said that he was Elijah. But John the Baptist now says he's not Elijah. Well, remember... He's not the final fulfillment of that. And they're asking, are you Elijah? And he says, I'm not. He had gone in the spirit and the power of Elijah. But he's not the final fulfillment of it. That's why Jesus said, Elijah's already come. And they did to him whatever they wanted. They're going to do the same to the Son of Man. Again, this takes the Holy Spirit to give you a little bit of insight into the fact that he was the fulfillment, but not the fulfillment. You understand what I'm saying? Because the scripture says there's a dual fulfillment in that prophecy in Malachi chapter 4. John the Baptist was the first part of it. He was a precursor and could have been Elijah if the nation had responded, but they are not going to. And therefore, because the nation didn't respond, was he the fulfillment of, of that prophecy? No, he's not, because he's still to come. He's still to come. They then asked him, are you the prophet? So they've asked him, are you the Christ, are you Elijah, are you the prophet? Because these are all prophecies in the Old Testament about the fact that the Christ was going to come. That word means Messiah, by the way, in the Hebrew. And the Elijah was going to come and the prophet, I'm going to send a prophet from Moses, just like Moses. By the way, they didn't understand that the Christ and the prophet were the same person. The prophecies referring to Jesus. And he said, I'm not the prophet. So they said to him, well, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent by who? The Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. 
And these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. So why do the Pharisees and the Sadducees come out? Are they wanting to confess their sins and agree they're sinners and be baptized? No. They're wanting to see what's going on because everybody's leaving Jerusalem and Judea and going out to hear this guy. They're losing followers. They'd already sent these guys to go examine him. They weren't happy with the answer. So now they're coming out for themselves. And when they do, John says to them, well, let me put it to you this way. He said to them, don't trust in national salvation. See, the Pharisees and Sadducees were resting in national salvation, believing that because Abraham was their father, they were God's chosen special people, and they're going to be okay because they're descendants of Abraham. And John says, don't say that you're okay because you're descendants of Abraham. God's able to raise up from these stones descendants of Abraham if he wants to. You see, John was saying that trusting in your physical descent from Abraham was not enough. They needed to be people of faith like their father Abraham was in order to be righteous. For the sake of time, I'm not going to have you turn there. If you want to write it down, you can double check me. But way back in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, the Bible says that Abraham believed God and God credited it to him as righteousness. He believed God and God gave him righteousness at that moment. And that is in chapter 15 of Genesis. He was given righteousness because of his faith in God and God's promise. Now, in Romans chapter 4, I don't have the time tonight to read it all to you, but I encourage you, I beg you, please go home, read slowly Romans chapter 4, the whole chapter. But in that chapter, Paul lays out that when Abraham believed God and he was given righteousness, it wasn't after he was circumcised, but prior to when he was circumcised. And therefore, he became the father of all who believe and don't have to be circumcised. The circumcision was just a covenant, a sign that they were people of Israel. But Paul says it wasn't. He said, if the circumcision was the big deal, it would have nullified the promise. And it didn't nullify the promise. You and I are descendants of Abraham if we have faith in Jesus Christ. If you do the DNA check on you, you probably find you won't have any lineage coming from Abraham, probably most of us in this room. But didn't God promise that Abraham would be the father of many nations? How can he be the father of many nations? Well, through faith. And that's what Romans 4, verses 1 through 25 lays it all out. you got to read it slowly. Let the Spirit help you grasp it. But there's some amazing deep truth there in Romans chapter 4. Unfortunately, we don't have time tonight to break it all down. But John's message was that the one coming after him was going to be judging sin. Look, look at what he says back here in Matthew chapter 3. He says, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. In other words, I'm about to cut you down. I'm about to chop you down. The axe is already laid to the root of the trees. And then he goes on and says, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor. The chaff will be burned with unquenchable fire. Now, John did say that the one who come would also baptize with the Holy Spirit and gather his wheat into the barn. We'll deal with that more next week when we do our study. I'm going to spend some time dealing with his promise of being baptizing them in the Holy Spirit and with fire. There's been a lot of misunderstanding about baptizing in the fire, and we're going to clarify that hopefully next week as we do that study. But we're not dealing with that aspect of it. We're just dealing tonight with the fact that John's message was that the one to come after him who was mightier than him was about to deal with sin. 
You better acknowledge you have sin. You better agree with God that you're a sinner and that you need righteousness. And you want to show that by being baptized right now because you agree with this message that you're a sinner and you need to have righteousness to be ready for what God's about to do. Because when this guy shows up, the axe is already laid to the root of the trees. His winnowing fork's in his hand. And that's when you use to separate the wheat and the chaff. And he's going to gather the wheat in the barn. But the chaff are going to be just burned with unquenchable fire. When he shows up, he's going to deal with sin. Here's what happened, though. John the Baptist didn't understand that when Jesus came the first time, he was going to deal with sin, but not in the way that he thought. See, didn't you understand that John the Baptist even didn't fully understand the prophecies? If you were to go back and look at Matthew chapter 11, you'll see that John the Baptist is sitting in prison. And he sends some of his disciples to go ask Jesus, are you the one? Or should we look for someone else? I mean, if anybody knew who John the Baptist, I mean, who Jesus was, it would be John the Baptist. He was a near relative. He's the one who said, I, I didn't even know who he was until the one who sent me to baptize said, the one you see the Spirit come down on, that's the one. That's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He must increase, I must decrease. I mean, if anybody knew who Jesus was, it was John the Baptist. But now all of a sudden, this message that God had him preach about being ready, and he's going to deal with sin. And he's not looking like John thought he was going to look. He's being nice. He's eating with sinners. Where's this dealing with sin thing? Have you ever questioned why God does things the way he does things? You ever wondered why he lets stuff go on the way he does? Have you ever sat and thought and said, wait a minute, Jesus, you already said that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to you. Since you've risen from the dead, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to you. Yet, why aren't you exercising that authority? Why aren't you dealing with the wickedness in this world? Why aren't you, why are you still being patient? We have to be real careful as well. If John the Baptist can be confused, don't you think you and I might be able to be confused a little bit by the fact that he's God and we're not and he does things the way he does things? What John didn't know was that the one who comes, his first way of dealing with sin was to take it upon himself. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, we all know real well, you don't have to turn there, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he became sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Go to Romans chapter 8, look at verses 1 through 4. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Do you see it? By the way, can the law make us righteous before God? Is it because the law is not good? No, the law is perfect. It's the word of God. It's holy. 
it's a good thing, then how come the law can't make us holy? If it's God's word and it's, and, and it's, it's pure and it's right and it's good, why can't it make us holy? Well, the Bible tells us the law was made weak because of what? Because of our flesh. As you've heard me say to you before in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 56, the Bible says the power of sin is the law. What fuels sin is the law. Paul said, I didn't even know what coveting was till the law said don't covet. And then all of a sudden, all this coveting, covetous ideas rose up within me. The law just makes us sin. So what we're going to do? Well, God took care of that. He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Oh, and jump down to verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Isn't that awesome? You've been made righteous because of what Jesus did. By the fact that he dealt with sin. How did he deal with sin? By becoming sin. See, John the Baptist was right. He is going to come, and there's going to be a judgment day. But that's in his second coming. John the Baptist was right. He's going to deal with sin. But in his first coming, he dealt with sin by becoming sin and defeating it himself. Go to Galatians chapter 3. Look at verses 10 through 14. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Again, Paul lays out for us, if you're going to rely on being obedient to the law, you have to be perfect. You have to be perfect at it. By the way, is anybody able to do that? But righteous shall live by faith. Now, let me just, in the time we have left, deal with this a little bit for us Christians tonight. If you're like me, and I'm pretty sure you are, even though we've been saved, you still struggle with sin. Right? And when God opens your eyes to your sin, and he says, you need to repent, we have many times said, Yes, that's right. I regret that I've done that. I've had a change of mind about that. And I am going to not do that anymore. Do you realize what we do when we do that? We try to make ourselves righteous on our own through works of the law. Through our own flesh. Which, by the way ain't going to make us righteous. We're already righteous first off, but when it comes to daily righteousness and sanctification, you can't do better. Remember repentance, true repentance 
isn't just a change of mind that's followed by a change of actions. It's tied to an understanding of who Jesus really is. So when God comes to me now and shows me my sin, and he says, you need to repent, my response is not, you're right, and I'll do better. My response is, you're right, and I turn from it, and by your grace, this won't happen anymore. By your power. I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. The life I live now is not by trying harder and doing more and working harder. The life I live, I live by faith in the one who died for me. Does that sound familiar? That's what Paul said in Galatians 2, chapter 20. Folks, let me encourage you. The way in which you receive Jesus as Lord is how we walk in it. Did you need to do anything to save yourself when God showed you your lostness and you repented and you came to him? Did he show you you had to do anything except come to him in faith? On a daily basis now, believe that that same God who began the good work in you will finish it and stop trying to do better. Years ago, I was living in an apartment. This is 30 years ago. I was living in an apartment with my brother, John, behind the ABC Liquor on, on Babcock. You know, in Palm Bay, there's the ABC Liquor over there by Meemaw's. There's an apartment complex there. And my brother and I, we had moved out of our parents' house, and we had our own apartment. And I was going through a period in my life where I was struggling with sin, and I knew God had a call on my life to ministry, and I kept trying to stop sinning. How do you think I did? I, man, I rededicated myself. I devoted myself. And finally, I got so sick of it, I laid on the floor in the living room on that dirty carpet because we were two single guys living there and it wasn't clean. And I laid on my face and I played this old song. Some of you might be old enough to remember Greg X. Bowles. He used to sing with Petra. and There was a song that he had called Take Me Back. Well, you take me back. And I played that song as I laid on the floor. And I said, God, I'm not going to get up until you take me back. And I played that song over and over. I wore that tape out. Whenever it stopped, push play again, rewind, push play. And I laid there literally for hours crying and saying, God, take me back. I'm sorry. Take me back. Then all of a sudden, the words of that song hit me that night. At the end of the song, this is what he says. Through my tears, my eyes were opened. And I just had to laugh when I realized you never, ever let me go. And that's when God began to do a work in my heart to say, look, I started it. I'll finish it. Stop trying to fix it. That's my job. Believe that I will. Oh, have I had to learn more about repentance over the years? Without question. And I could tell you story upon story upon the next episode and the next episode and the next episode as he brought me to a deeper understanding of it. Folks, tonight, thank him for the fact that he saved you and he'll sanctify you. Paul puts it this way in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. Now may your whole body, soul, and spirit be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. I love you. See you next week.